Hello and welcome to episode 61 of the Page One Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Tarek. Uh, and thanks for joining us at the Page One Podcast, where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing process, how they broke into the industry, and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. Um, because Tarek and I are both writers as well. You don't need it, of course, though, Tarek, because your book's coming out in October. That's right, and this is actually the time to see how we're leaving the podcast now. Marco. <laughs> I've learned all I can. Yeah, no more <laughs> hints and tips for you. <laughs> I'm about uh, to push push the wonders of ebooks across the world. Exactly, that's it. An ebook salesman, traveling <laughs> yeah, salesman, traveling salesman <laughs> for a digital product. Yeah, <laughs> um, but no, actually, as as we learn, especially from this week's guest, you're always learning as a writer. I think, and always adapting. Um, and who is this week's guest, Tarek? This week, we are very pleased to have chatted with the wonderful Nick Hornby. Uh, who is probably well known to a lot of people. His uh, his first book was Fever Pitch, which I believe is about some kind of sport. I'm not really into sports, <laughs> so I believe it might be rugby. And yes. then, uh, but of course, the book that perhaps is best well known for is High Fidelity, which was a 1995 book adapted into a fairly big film. Um, then About a Boy, which was perhaps even bigger. So he's you know, yeah. He's really I, I was going to say like I think he's well known for a lot of his books. Yeah, no, as I, as I was saying, that was like yeah, more than one. Book yeah, exactly. He's he's had a massive string of success with his books and has more recently moved into screenwriting as well. Mm-hmm. Um, he's again had massive success there writing things like Wild Brooklyn, um, and you know even getting Oscar nominations and stuff like that as well. So yeah. Uh, we talked to him about all of that and how he got into novel writing and then how he moved into the screenwriting world as well. And it's it's really interesting just hearing from him. I mean, he actually got into novels, as we'll hear, not in the usual way. It was an agent actually approached him as opposed to uh, the other way around, which was, you know, it's what you it's always... the dream. Exactly. Makes it much easier <laughs> if, if yeah, that exactly. happens. Cut out the whole middle step. <laughs> exactly. And he also tells us about a very exciting project that he's working on a TV project uh, that he's working on just now uh, towards the end of the podcast. It's definitely worth listening out for that one if you're a music fan, I think. Don't go anywhere. Exactly. A little bit just to make sure you you stay for the very end. Exactly, yeah, we're teasing you. (laughs) Um, But we'll get straight into the podcast after an advert for our Page One Notebook, and then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's guest. But for now, on with the podcast. The Blank Page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. 
We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made Page One. Page One is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story, so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Did you always want to be a writer? Because I know you were a teacher for a while, but was, was the goal always to be a writer? Um, I didn't really know or think about what I wanted to do until my late teens, I guess. And then um, I wanted quite badly to be a writer. I I wanted to write for New Musical Express, mm-hmm. um, but did nothing to advance that ambition in any way <laughs> whatsoever. Um and uh, and didn't do any writing, didn't write, didn't write. Um, trained to be a teacher because I didn't know what else to do. Um, and then after a couple of years, um, I had an idea to write. It was for a screenplay, and I thought, I'm too lazy to teach and write, so I'm going to have to pack up teaching. Um <laughs> And uh, for the next few years, I did a mix of like supply teaching, proofreading, right. writing, language teaching. Um, the only thing that didn't pay in any of that was was the writing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, so interesting that it was a, it was a screenplay was the first thing that you you thought of that you wanted to do. Yeah, I I think I'd been. Uh, hampered by my university education i was uh, I, I was at a state school and i was encouraged to go to cambridge um and i went and i, I shouldn't have done really mm-hmm. um and all the reading that i did in my university course um i wasn't a very good student but i did do some reading um just convinced me that i wouldn't ever be a prose writer it was the right, you know, I, the way I thought was the wrong kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I couldn't do that English prose thing. So I thought that um, if I could do anything, it was that I could write dialogue and story and that screenplay was the obvious way to start. Um, but I didn't have a clue. I mean, you know, I didn't know anyone in the business. I, 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 I think the first things I wrote were like, BBC Play for Today's, yeah, right, okay. right around the time where there was no Play for Today anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so I was sort of happy enough writing them, sending them off in a brown envelope to the BBC, 
never hearing anything again and then starting another one. That, uh, uh, that, was, that was the limit of it at the time. So what, what changed then? What, what was the, the big push that made you actually say, this is the thing I want to do, this is how I want to crack it? Um, well, I, the wanting to do it wasn't a problem. I wanted to do it. Uh, what changed was um, reading the right kinds of things, actually, um, was coming across a whole bunch of American writers in the 80s and thinking, oh, I didn't know this was writing too. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I read, um, I mean, Anne Tyler was the, the big one for me. Um, and Richard Ford, Raymond Carver, Laurie Moore, uh, all very strong voices, all quite, um, uh, you know, idiomatic as well and conversational. And I was really sort of bowled away and and thought, oh, you know, I don't think I could write like Salman Rushdie or Julian Barnes, but maybe I could write like this. Mm -hmm. And... um, and I started to write short stories just to see if I could, and I sold a couple. Um, and it sort of went on from there, really. A, a, um, an agent heard something on the radio, um, asked me to come in, and um, and I'd, I'd had the idea for Fever Pitch by then. I mean, something I was thinking about. And I pitched her this idea, even though she was uh, sort of... Um, not like me at all, quite posh lady. And, and she, when I told her the idea of fever pitch, she said, oh, I can spell that. And I was so surprised mm-hmm. that I went off and wrote the beginning of it. And that's, um, that was what enabled me to go into writing full time. That's quite interesting. Probably, sorry. Sorry, no, no, I, I didn't mean to interrupt. I, I was just going to say that's quite interesting that it was an agent actually contacted you and, and arranged a meeting to have a discussion um, you know, that's quite unusual, I would say. Yeah, I think um, from what, I mean, I've got a, a couple of friends who are agents. My, one of my best friends is is now my agent, and I know that she's constantly on the lookout. So, you know, university magazines or friends recommending people, whatever. So um, I think sometimes it works that way round. I don't think it works that way round in in the film business, mm. but in 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 the books business, I think that they they do need to keep looking out for younger writers. Mm-hmm. And, and... and that was the thing I learned actually, looking back on that whole experience, is that um, I, I still think books are probably the. the the easiest way for most writers to start off because publishers will take a punt on a career. Um, It doesn't cost them that much to give a small advance for a first book and then a small print run and think, well, maybe the second book or the third book will be Mm -hmm. the one that breaks through. I mean, with me, it was my first book, but um, I think with screenplays, you cannot say, this is a promising writer no, that, spent yeah. five million pounds on a on this movie. Mm-hmm. You just have to send them away and say, "Show us the next thing." Mm-hmm. No, totally. And of course, Fever Pitch um, was a, more a memoir. You know, it wasn't a yeah. it wasn't a novel. I mean, yeah. what made you approach? You know, why did you choose to go down that route as opposed to sort of fictionalizing a version of it? What made you think this would work as a memoir instead? Uh, because I'd just read Tobias Wolff's This Boy's Life, 
Right. And I, again, it was something new to me, memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, a sort of literary memoir where you didn't have to be famous in order to write yeah. the thing. Um, and the whole thing about football, you know, my relationship was so intense, but I, I thought the more I thought about football, you know, just from thinking about it, just because I was sat there with nothing to do apart from think about it, mm-hmm. the more I realised that it said quite a lot about Britain and about masculinity and, um, you know, lots of us have a relationship with th- football through our fathers or our brothers mm-hmm. or whatever. So there were all kinds of stories contained within it. And I thought, oh, I'm just going to try and keep it as a memoir and see if it works. Mm-hmm. And of course, it then went on to become a massive success. I mean, you must have been surprised by how big it got so quickly. Yes. Um I mean, what I did think was that if it worked, it would be successful because um, I just thought, you know, at the time, uh, football wasn't as commercialised as it Mm. was now. And and, and that, you know, I knew people would spend 30 quid on a duvet cover. Why wouldn't they spend £12 on a hardback? I'm just talking about Arsenal fans. That's quite a big Mm. market compared to most first books. Most yeah. first books sell three, four thousand copies, and I thought maybe I could sell ten thousand mm-hmm. um, to Arsenal fans buying it for people for Christmas or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it jumped to other teams, and then it jumped to other countries, and that was what I hadn't really anticipated. Mm-hmm. That, it, that it was about you know your relationship with your club or your sport, even if you weren't an Arsenal fan, even if you weren't British. And in some cases, even if it wasn't football, it's it's quite an interesting kind of plan to 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 write something which, with a kind of ready-made audience, you know, maybe almost like an untapped kind of market of this is folk who I know will be interested in it, and rather than just kind of like so many folk in their first piece of work throw out into the void, and it's hard to try to break through and to find the audience. But that's it's quite a nice way. Well, it was something I was able. When I started to talk to publishers, I'd written a bit and my agent said, you know, I've definitely got interest. And I went to speak to them. And it was just something that I started saying during meetings. Like, you know, I I know there's a market Mm -hmm. for a book uh, uh, about football, which is intelligent um, or not stupid. And it wasn't a ghostwritten memoir. And, They couldn't, lots of them were very shy of it. They just said, well, football books don't work. And I was always saying, well, I don't think you publish the right kinds of books. The people Mm -hmm. who read books don't want to read these books, uh, but they might want to read this one. And um, I do think you've got more of a commercial shot than you would with the first novel. So it was just, it was just desperation, really, trying to think of something to say to publishers. But I was right. (laughs) You were right, yeah. And you and you, you kind of stuck with that write what you know kind of angle a little bit with high fidelity, which was because yeah. you're obviously a big music fan and that was yeah. about the music scene. Was that a conscious choice again to kind of tap into that area? No, it was. Uh, I mean, uh, I, I I wouldn't like to give the impression that there was any conscious choice very much about anything at any stage. <laughs> um, uh, it was all um, accidental and and uh, and a big surprise to me. Um, I mean, the weird thing about fever uh, about high fidelity was that um, what I wanted to do was write a novel about 
relationships from the guy's point of view. Um, so, you know, it was a sort of domestic fiction in the way that, uh, the, the kind of domestic fiction that I'd enjoyed so much reading with the, the Ann Tylers and the Laurie Moores. But, um, that there wasn't so much of a male perspective on it at the time. And right at the end of thinking about it and having conceived of the shape of the book, I thought, oh, what what's this guy's job going to be? I mean, it was really like that. And, right. and, and, and I thought, uh, you know, I've spent half my life in record shops. I'll make him a record shop owner. And once I'd done that, um, the music kind of took over a little bit both in the writing and, and, and the thinking. And and did did you find the... Because obviously High Fidelity was the first novel, as opposed to the yeah. memoir. Um, was the process for you the same, though, in terms of how you planned it, if you did? You know, I'm not sure if you plan or, uh, no, or don't plan. I didn't plan, plan it. I haven't right. planned. I, I still don't really plan. Um, I, well, I remember thinking, well, this is, this is really different. Um, mm-hmm. because, um, you know, it's just a very basic thing that when you're writing a memoir, you don't question any of the details of your memory necessarily. Um, you just think, oh, yeah. And, uh, and then I walked, and then on the other side of the road, there was this guy, and this guy said this, and, you know, mm-hmm. I just wrote that down. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I remember one passage in High Fidelity where I was writing, and and I thought, oh, the phone box is on the other side of the street and then he crosses the road to get in the phone box. And as I was writing the sentence, I thought, why is the phone box on the other side of the street? Why can't it be on this side of the street? And then I thought, why isn't he waiting till he gets home, till he calls her? And 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 I just realised that there was everything was built on sand. You mm-hmm. know, uh, mm-hmm. Every detail was changeable if you let it be changeable, whereas I'd had these very secure tent posts with fever pitch. And I, I became much more frightened of the process of writing <laughs> fiction or self-conscious about it while I was writing High Fidelity. And I had to get over that. And did you, did, did it then take longer to write than Fever Pitch? Yeah. 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 No, there's nothing that has been as easy as Fever Pitch. Right, I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. was six months, I would say, beginning to end. What's your, what's your process now then, you know, because obviously you've 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 written a string of successful books, you've presumably found a way to get past that kind of mm. shifting sand way. What 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 what's the method there? And what what sort sort of kind of process do you have now? I don't really have a process. Um, I I would say that the only thing that has kind of worked for me is that ever since Fever Pitch was published, it's taken me time, either because of publicity or because of other projects in recent years, specifically film projects. It's taken me a lot of time to get to the book. And by the time I get there, I tend to know quite a lot about it. I mean, it it just occupies mental space. And and there comes a point when I'm quite frustrated that I haven't been able to start it. Mm -hmm. But... um, I start with a beginning and characters and the characters I know pretty well by the time I sit down. Um, I, most of the narrative is done on the hoof. Um, I, I usually have kind of a couple of things that I'm pitching towards maybe in the middle and the end of the book, but uh, a lot of it is kind of 
narrative set pieces and it's set piece to set piece and 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 i don't i don't really plot it out my brother-in-law who mostly writes thrillers robert harris i mean he he's sort of terrifyingly organized um because he needs to be and mm-hmm. and and i i understand why he does what he does but i i don't have to do that and and a lot of the fun for me is generating narrative during the course of the day thinking oh, i didn't know that was going to happen mm-hmm. when i sat down but now it has happened and it, it feels all right so do you kind of have an idea for where you want to take the story but not necessarily how it'll end up or how you'll even get there and stuff yes um it's more or less um it's all done by tone really i know the tone that i want to hit at the Mm. end and then i find the narrative that gets me there and does that lead to you know cul-de-sacs when you're writing that first draft or anything you know do you do you find yourself going in a direction and then thinking oh i'll need to Right I have this. done. Yeah. I have done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, about a boy and a long way down. I remember I hit cul-de-sacs and about a boy. I chucked quite a lot. The most I've ever chucked right. of a book. Probably the first twenty thousand words or something. Wow. Um, that was a bad bad day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> what's the what? What's changed? I mean, it's. I mean, I suppose. Is there a solution to that, or is, or would you do you not want you know would you not want to change the way that you that you write and and plan to to, to avoid that? I think um, I, I think that the solution um, is just thinking and and um, uh, and I think that as I've got older and I've got more experienced, I I have ways of checking that the the narrative is sturdy enough before I write it. Um, with with About a Boy, um, I was denying too much information, both from the characters and from the reader. And, uh, and I found that I was writing stuff that didn't, uh, didn't go where I wanted it to go, didn't cut deep enough or um, true enough, uh, because it was based on this kind of high concept riff. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, which might have worked for a movie, but really didn't work um, in a book when I was trying to be quite internal with the characters. So I was sort of being internal, but also denying information. And it and I, I, I reached a point where I thought, no, this doesn't work at all. I have to start from the beginning and not deny the information. And so... Is your process, I know you said you don't really have a process, but but when you're writing a novel, do you go through a number of drafts then? Or do you, you know, you're someone that revises as you go and try to fix it yeah, as you go? I, I think that um, the first drafts are in reasonable shape. I can't go on and leave something right, um, okay. if I know it's not right. And, um, and also a book, you know, it's quite a big thing. So you can, if you feel it, changing course you can do it slowly within the course mm-hmm. of the book and and maybe it will take a different narrative shape um whereas with the screenwriting you've got no time or space at all so um you can't you can't sort of switch in midstream or or take it to a different place um because you you, you you've wasted too much time already as it were yeah and I, I kind of wondered about your your jump into the screenplay world. I mean, yeah. how did that how did that move 
come about? Was that that was that due due to the adaption of the Fever Pitch book? Was that was that how you kind of got into it? Well, that was the first time I'd been paid for anything that was made. Yes, um, and weirdly, that came right at the beginning of the publication. Uh, um, right. The the young director who made the film. He made a piece about the book for the BBC and uh, and he said, I want to make a feature film of this um, before it was published. And I sort of laughed and said, yeah, all right, be my guest. You know, um, it didn't seem the most natural <laughs> thing for a movie. And he said, well, you've got to adapt it because um, it's going to be your memoir that you're, you know, I, I need you to fictionalise it and, and you're the best person to do that. And so I said, oh, OK, I'll have a go. Um, and I did a draft or two drafts and then we met a young producer and then we took it to film four and I mean the whole thing took about five years I guess Mm -hmm. Uh, and I never really thought it would happen Um, I just kept doing drafts until eventually film four said oh we can go with this now which surprised me greatly Um, and then I didn't really think very much of doing screenplays. I knew I didn't want to adapt my own books after that. Um, Not because I I hadn't had a good time doing it, but because, uh, well, it became clear to me that I had things that I wanted to do. I had ideas. I had ideas for a next book and a book after. And given it, it takes, it was taking like two years to write a novel and five years to then adapt it. I thought there's no way I'm living with this material for seven years. Yeah. I really want to get on and do something else. So whenever a book was optioned after that, I, did, I just said, fine, you do what you want with it. I don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. The, the, big, um, the big change for me was an education. Um, and that came because uh, my wife, who is an independent producer, she was just sort of looking to get back into the game after having kids and you know she's a young independent producer she was looking for books and I remember we had this conversation where I said look the books you're being offered or you're getting your hands on are the books that every other film company studio has turned down basically Mm -hmm. so you're you're thinking about books that actually people have decided aren't going to make movies and and so you're working at a handicap and I said I think you should look for other things you should look for magazine articles fragments of autobiography whatever it is and right at that moment I read this essay in Granta by Lynn Barber and I said like this look at this look at this and it was about seven pages Mm -hmm. but it had such great um, characters in it and such a surprising story Um, so she she optioned it, much to Lynn's surprise, I think. And um, and then when she started talking about screenwriters, I, I I suddenly felt very possessive of the material and said, I want to have a go. And again, it took a long time, but um, it was such a, you know such something I became so proud of. And and you know she got an Oscar nomination, I got an Oscar nomination. You think, oh, this is. This is yeah. actually fun, and mm-hmm. um, and I had colleagues for the first time for a long time, and I enjoyed having colleagues yeah. as well. Well, I was going to ask about that because obviously it is 
it is a more collaborative process uh, mm. screenwriting um which i suppose comes with pluses and minuses um mm. I, I mean what what is it that you know what is your take on it is it something that you enjoy having written novels on your own for so long that having that that collaborative process yeah i i enjoy it and um I enjoy working with directors. I love working with actors. Um, well, I did, it wasn't something that I knew I was going to love, but the first table reading we had for an education, I realised that it, in my head, I knew how to say all these lines and, and that therefore the finished version of the film would either be as good as the version in my head or not as good as the version in my head, okay? Mm-hmm. And at the table reading with Kerry Mulligan and Alfred Molina, I thought, oh, it's better than the version I had in my head, that they find way more nuance and shade and all this thing in the lines. And I think this, this is incredible. And, um, and, you know, that cast was so amazing anyway, Rosamond and Dom- Dominic Cooper, um, that uh, I, I, I was kind of really knocked out by what actors could do. Um, and uh, and so then it, th- that became something then I wanted to think about properly as doing more screenplays. And a lot of the screenplays that, that you've written have been have been adaptions, you know, yeah. stuff like Wild or Brooklyn. And yeah. what is it? Is it harder or easier when you're writing a screenplay that you've kind of got a base book from? You know, is it is that is it freeing? Or sorry, is it is it is it constrictive? But is it a nice thing to be constricted by? Is it completely nice? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's a bit like, you know, what I was saying about memoir at the beginning. Mm-hmm. These things happen and you write them. Mm-hmm. And and to have, have a book, um, uh, this is what happens in the book. And, and of course, you can change things and, uh, and so on. But, you know, if a book really works, you don't really want to change that that much. Yeah. And um, I think the trouble with original screenplays and why they're so hard to get off the ground is simply that shifting sands thing again. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, you let's say you've, you've got, uh, you know, a, a boy meets girl story um, set in the 1970s. Um, at some point, somebody will say, why isn't it a guy meets guy story in the 1980s? And you think, actually, I've got no idea why it's not a guy mm-hmm. meets guy story in the, the 1980s. And... There, the collaborative nature and the numbers of people involved are probably not helpful because everything is up for grabs at all time. Whereas with a book, nothing's really up for grabs. Um, Brooklyn is about what it's about and your decisions are uh, within the context of of the novelist's Mm. work. The other thing I'd say about adaptation is that every time I've started a book, I... You know, I, I don't write in a genre. I don't write returning characters. So every time I start out thinking, I haven't done this before, this is this is new for me. And then halfway through the process, I think, oh, it's me again. Because mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you're stuck with who you are. I think um, um, I, I saw um, a novelist, who was it? Anyway, somebody recently saying, you've basically got, a deck of cards with about 40 cards in it. You haven't got the whole deck. 
and, and all you can do is shuffle those cards. And that's kind of true. You are who you are. Your interests are what they are. Your soul is what it is. Your, um, your empathy is what it is. Yeah. And, and you get stuck and you have to make the best of that. And so with, a, with a, adapting someone else's work, I think I could never have written this in a million years. And now I've been given access to this yeah. material. So it's like I've gone out of my own head and into somebody else's. And that's yeah. incredibly You've liberating. been given more cards to the yeah, deck. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a nice way to look at it, actually. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it in that way. But yeah, I suppose it is exactly. You're getting more cards in your deck. You're playing with the different tools, blah, blah, blah. Merging like, the just because Just because you're who you are doesn't mean you can't love other things. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We all love music that is not like we are. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we try and cover as wide a range as possible and find people who express our feelings, whether it's in jazz or classical or, or hard rock or whatever, and, and maybe all of those at once. And, you know, Wild is a case in point. I adored that book. I could never have written it in a million years. It's not, I hadn't done that walk for a start. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was about all sorts of things that I don't normally think about, but I responded you know, purely emotionally to that book. And I wanted to adapt it for that reason. And when you're in that, in that film process, you know, you hear about in screenplays, the, the sort of the producer's notes and all this sort of stuff. I mean, is that, do you find that similar to a process of getting notes from an editor or is it a bit different Is you know, having other people involved in a film makes it slightly more difficult to stick to what you want to write? Yeah. Yeah, it makes it more difficult. And um, I've mostly been lucky uh, in that I've worked with people I've trusted. Um, I mean, you have an individual relationship with an editor, and if that relationship isn't working, then you're not with that editor anymore. Yeah. Um, So it's very simple in in book terms. You're not going to flog through book after book with someone who doesn't like your writing or, you know, thinks you should be writing something else. Whereas every film project is a whole different cast of people, some of whom are better than others. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and sometimes more than one production company. And, of course, sometimes they are arguing about things for reasons that are not to do with the art of the screenplay, and, and they're perfectly at liberty to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, some some scenes are too expensive, mm-hmm. and and so you're told they're too expensive, and you either lose them or reconfigure them in a way that's a lot cheaper. I completely get all that. Um, the hardest thing is when you, you you feel that you're getting notes from somebody who's dim. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. And and the other thing, but when we've spoken to other people about this as well, is that you're getting notes. You know, it's not just one one set one person giving you notes. There's yeah. there's a whole stream of people that are giving yeah. notes, and sometimes they can be in conflict and all, all yeah. of this sort of stuff. So, yeah, that that bit of the process doesn't sound like a lot of fun. But um, well, that's where I think you need um, a good hands-on producer through whom everything is right. funneled. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, you know, I've got. Uh, my wife and her producing partner, who I've worked with on two finished films and a couple of un- unmade films, but they are very good at weeding out the notes that are coming from above them. Right. If there is an above them. I mean, 
with both an education and Brooklyn, there was nobody above us. It just started with the three of us and mm -hmm. no money, no cast, no nothing. Um, just the, the money we had to auction the book in the case of Brooklyn. And then as it goes on, more and more people join in. But by then you're your script is in a reasonable enough state that they're considering joining yeah. in in the first place. You've done a lot of the work. Um, the hardest ones have been, uh, you know, I, I, I've worked on maybe four American movies that haven't gone anywhere at all. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that is often because of completely conflicting notes. And I imagine that must be... And bloody directors as well. <laughs> And I imagine that must be incredibly frustrating because you put so much time and effort into this and it, it takes so long to get somewhere just to get told, just for it to fall apart at that point, it must be. And, and I mean, is that the same as it is in the TV world? Cause I know you're in the TV world a little bit now. Yeah. Is it similar, the same idea, or is it is it quicker? Uh, some things have been quicker, but um, I think I've, I, I've had a fairly firm grasp right from the beginning that there's probably... Uh, a one in 10 shot that this will get made. Okay. Um, and that if, if you if you want the secure knowledge that your work is not going to be wasted, then this isn't the right job for you. Yeah. Um, that you have to take, you have to play those percentages. Mm. Um, uh, you know, there were different stages in my career, I suppose, when I was being paid to do something and I, I wanted the money. Um, with a young family and, and mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. I'd say at this stage of my career, I need to know that I've got a better than one in 10 chance of something being made. Um, but you can't guarantee anything. I can't guarantee that my work is going to find the people who understand it. I can't guarantee that the money will ever be raised. I can't guarantee that um, you will find a sufficient level of casting to get the film made, that you're that somebody at this level is interested, but not at that yeah, level, uh -huh. and, and that can doom the whole thing. So, I think that the thing with film is not to focus on one project. That, that if you're going to do it, make sure you have four or five on the go, because if it's just the one and you've done what you can on it, you'll drive yourself crazy. Yeah. This is never going to be made, or this needs to be made. It's just out of your hands once you've done as good a job as you can. And then it will come back to you with the director at some point. And in terms of, of making a career in the in the film or the TV uh, world, um, you know, if you if you spend six months or a year working on something and then it falls apart, mm. do you still get to use that kind of that, that street cred of, you know, I everyone in the, in, the, in the industry knows that you wrote the script and you can still use that to promote yourself or is that or do you lose you do you only really get the credit if it gets made you know i mean how much of a, of a loss is it really to you if it that's a good apart? question i don't really know um i think that you know a lot of these things i've been talking about that never got made uh, the american things they were all announced and my name was attached to them mm -hmm. and i don't know if that did me any good the fact that you know, uh, I don't know, uh, me and Jason Reitman were working on something together that never got made. But, you know, there was a story that Nick Hornby and Jason Reitman are collaborating. Yeah. I imagine if that story gets in 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 the trade press, then somebody somewhere is thinking, oh, 
yeah, you know, that's he's interesting, that writer, and now he's doing this thing with Jason Reitman. Mm-hmm. I don't think they ever think, oh, actually, that never came out, you know, five years later. It's just it's just all chatter that keeps you yeah. in, in the game, I guess. But uh, most recently, you've, you've you've moved back into into novel, right? You you released your first novel for for a few years, um, yeah. Just like you, um, which just came out in September, I think. Yeah. Uh, um, do you want to tell us a bit about about that? Well, I mean, I still think of myself as a screenwriter and a novelist. Mm-hmm. I mean, those two things. And before I tell you about the book. Um, that that process won't the thing about writing a novel is it has to come from you it's got to be your idea and um, and then you've got to create the time to do it and uh, like 95% of my um, screen work comes from outside so you know at the beginning of 2018 say I, I think right this is the year I'm going to write this novel and then I get a phone call and it's something I really, really want to do mm-hmm. in screen. So the novel's gone for another few months. Yeah. And and so the fact that it's sort of five years between novels is not me not thinking of myself as a novelist, but committing to work that's going to take a while and then something else coming along and something else yeah. coming along. Maybe something that I wrote a long time ago coming back um and 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 needing work so um it's not so much going back to novel writing it never went away but it's harder to to create that space where i can Mm -hmm. write it um i had an idea a long time ago about um a couple who were separated by particularly class and age um and whether in britain um, it was possible to uh, connect romantically with someone who was outside of your class and your education uh, background. And, you know, it's not something we do, I think, in England mm-hmm. an awful lot or in Britain an awful lot. Um, less America it seems to be freer in that way, but we're very hidebound by all sorts of things. We almost have arranged marriages um in terms of you know somebody who's read this book and been to this studied this at this university or whatever and I kept thinking about them and then race got added to it as well along the way um and I didn't really know what to do with them until after the referendum um and and that then it seemed to me that you know it looked like one half of the country was never going to talk to the other again And I thought maybe I should think about them, this couple, in this context where there is a lot of division and anger. And um, and I wanted to try and write a, an optimistic book about connection at a time of disconnection. And and how how was it as well? The the other issue as well as as well as Brexit and everything that's going on. Obviously, you're launching the book in. 2020 which is yeah. not the best year to 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 do that i mean how, how did you find that and how different was it from from previous launches well there's been a lot of this um yeah you know i i did an american book tour from this chair um <laughs> um which i kind of quite liked because um american book tours are punishing 
and um, and you can't do anything else while you're doing that. And it's maybe a month, you know, of your of your writing year gone. Um, uh, but I, I was sort of writing, and then at six o'clock, do a Zoom to Tetris yeah. or whatever. Mm. So there was that. I think it's very hard for booksellers yeah. um, at the moment because they're they're relying on uh, Amazon and online. Mm-hmm. And it's a certain kind of book that takes over in that environment. Yeah, I think that's right. And also, you know, they've been saying that lots of people have been reading and all this sort of stuff during lockdown and everything. But yeah. it's just, it must be more difficult to try and stand out if you're if you're launching a book in this. You know, if, if you don't have the bookshop, if you don't have a book launch, if you don't, it, it's just I mean, just as you were saying it's certain types of book that will jump out yeah. to people I mean it's alright for someone like me because I know I'll get reviewed mm-hmm. and I know that I'll get stocked mm-hmm. um, but I think younger writers it's really really tough mm-hmm. um, and yes it seems as though we're, we're reading more but let's face it we've all got enough books in our houses that we haven't read no one has to go out and buy another another book Mm -hmm. Um, and if in fact you can't buy books because the shops are closed you're more likely to to look at what's on the shelves and think I think like some people have done about what they've never read they felt that they should have read or that they'd always wanted to read Mm -hmm. so that doesn't necessarily help you if you've got a new book coming out does the does the state of of play in terms of things at Brexit which you've mentioned and you know COVID does that Influence obviously it does influence to some level, you know, what you want to write about and uh, the thoughts that you want to share and stuff. And um, is it important you think that that books kind of tackle, not all books obviously, but certain books tackle these big issues that are going on right now, and especially in terms of the division in society, etc., Brexit, and Trump's America, and that that sort of thing. Is it is it important that there's messages and in, in in the work that, that you do? Uh, well, I've never tried to write a book that, as, that addresses things so directly as I did in Just Like You, where mm-hmm. there's, there's a, a political contemporary event. I, I was emboldened to do it partly because I felt I was doing something different um, from what I'd read about other writers doing. And my angle was that I was fed up with my own side. Um, that um, you know, I voted to remain, um, and like all the other remainers, I hated everyone who voted to leave and thought <laughs> they were mad and so on. But after a few weeks, I really started to get sick of listening to remainers talking about how ignorant everyone was and how brainwashed they'd been and. Um, I don't know if you remember, but there was a petition the day after the <laughs> referendum saying a petition calling for the vote to be um, you know, re- replayed yeah, yeah. or something. Um, and, and I kept getting um, emails from people saying, you've got to sign this petition. And you think, what the hell? You know, we just had a petition yesterday yeah, yeah, exactly. and, and we lost it. Um, <laughs> and and oh, that, that, I had emails from people saying 1.2 million have already signed it. He said, you, you know, it was 18 million. <laughs> and look, when you get up to 17 and a half million, let me know and I'll join in. But, and it all dribbled out at about 1.8 million. And, and the, the arrogance of that position, um, like we know that um, 
we have to do this again because we're clever and we're right. Mm. Um, so it enabled me to take a position of neutrality when I was writing the book. And I did try to give people who were voting um, to leave persuasive arguments or at least empathetic arguments, mm-hmm. not just, oh, I've had enough of it and that, you know they won't let us sell bendy bananas and, and there are too many Polish people here. I, <laughs> I, I wanted to avoid that. Um, so I, I was encouraged by that. I think COVID... <laughs> It's hard for me to imagine at the moment that I will have a thought that somebody else hasn't had at some point in the last 10 months. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm also rather dreading the amount of COVID literature mm-hmm. and isolation literature that's in the works. I don't think, I don't know how much of it I will want to read and I don't think I want to write any of it. And also it, it, it would be, it, well, hopefully, it will be very dated very quickly that, uh, in relation to... Hopefully, yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, a lot of these things are being written out, and I think when they come out, whether it's cinema or, or TV or, or books, um, they'll come out just at a time when we are allowed to explore wider horizons. And mm-hmm. you think, oh, great, a bloody yeah, film right. about two people... <laughs> in a room not being able to go out. I don't want to watch that. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, I my, One of my friends is the, the film director, Paul Greengrass, and he's got this Western coming out um, uh, over Christmas uh, called News of the World. And we were on holiday together in the summer and uh, he had to check the grade on the film. So he, he we went to a local cinema in France and watched this Western on this massive Brilliant. screen. Nice. And... It was the opposite of COVID, you know. It was mm-hmm. just fantastic to be in that world. And it made me think then, I don't want to write about yeah. isolation yeah. and quarantine. I want I want horses and skies. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, you want that kind of escapism. And- <laughs> <laughs> exactly, even if it's, if it's grim, yeah. or inte- uh, grim and intelligent uh, stuff, it's still escapism yeah. from yeah. where we are now. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, I also wanted to ask quickly about uh, the Ministry of Stories, which, which uh, yeah. you founded. Um, you know, what was your think? You know, is that from your background as a teacher, partly that, that you you wanted to to help with the no, young people was, reading and writing? It was completely. I mean, there's that which I think I learned an awful lot from actually teaching in a comprehensive school. Um, I think that the kind of books I write were the kinds of books that I was looking for when I was trying to teach, mm-hmm. which was um, that they are inclusive. That The reason that Of Mice and Men comes up again and again and again and again in school stock cupboards is because that book is so easy to understand and nobody can solve the problems of those characters, however smart they are. And that's like a perfect model of mm-hmm. a book. I think. Um, And uh, that's what I wanted to do, I suppose, when I I started to write. And my friend Roddy Doyle, I think, you know, he'd been a teacher as well, and he ended up, I think, writing similar books that were inclusive. Um, So I think that shaped both of us in that way. But the Ministry of Stories entirely came from my relationship with Dave Eggers in America, who started these schools there and whenever I went to visit him in San Francisco at the end of a book tour 
he always took me down to 826 Valencia, which was the first of his. And it's such an amazing place. And I got so much energy from it and hope from it where he, you know, the idea of putting young professionals in the arts together with inner city kids who weren't getting enough help mm-hmm. with, with their schoolwork and coming up with all this amazing creativity and fun. And I always thought I want to do this in London. And I and then I'd get back off the plane after book tour thinking, oh, who am I kidding? I've got three kids and I've, I've got a job and I'm not going to start this school. But then I was introduced to two people who wanted to do it. And so I was able to say, yeah, of course, you know, I'll front it and you, you get it set up. And that's what we did. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And I mean, what, what would your advice be to to young young adults who are who are wanting to try and get into that in, into the industry and become an author? Is there what what's the best path for for younger people trying to trying to break in? Well, I think you know these are in some ways exciting times um, because there are so many different forms and models mm-hmm. suddenly. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, it's financially less secure than it was, but. I think it, uh, they're casting a much wider net than they used to. It used to be a particular kind of person who ended up writing. And it was, you know, it was a job for gentlemen and ladies, really. But I think, I think this is right. When Penguin started, they didn't bother paying royalties um, in paperback. Because they, right? you know, the assumption was that was slightly vulgar, you know, to deal with that. <laughs> um, so... Uh, I'd, I'd say all these platforms, you know, th- there isn't one kind of writing. And, you know, I did this thing um, for AMC in America called State of the Union, which was 10, 10 minute mm-hmm. episodes. Well, I didn't know. I just had this idea of writing in 10 minutes and thought I, I didn't know who would be interested. But, you know, Stephen Frears directed it and we got a good cast and people found a way and and there are all these platforms for stuff like that books are still a great way in publishers still are looking for young writers and people are still reading mm-hmm. um but i think there are more opportunities than there were um and um and and in you know i know people are writing for video games i know people are writing um for all kinds of television and online platforms and and there's stuff going on that didn't used to be going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so, 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 what's next for you? Um, you said you were working on some screenplay projects. Are you? Have you got? Is that what the focus is just now, or have you got another book? Yeah, I haven't got on? another book. There are, I guess, three screenplay, three or four. I don't know. It depends what's dead and what isn't. But um, there's an adaptation of a novel that I did a long time ago which is currently you know they're trying to cast and raise money for that doesn't involve me at the moment there's a second season of state of the union um being filmed in january uh so i still have bits of work it it, it's a different couple um it's an older couple uh so it's like the same idea Mm -hmm. 10 minutes before marital therapy but um all being well, that that's got Brendan Gleeson and Patricia Clarkson in it, and Stephen's directing again. But my big, big, big job is um, uh, two seasons 
uh, of drama uh, about the Rolling Stones. Oh, wow. Hey, awesome. That would be amazing. Um, yeah, it is amazing. It's amazing that I'm getting to do it. And um, I keep saying most things that collapse, you have no memories of whatever happened apart from a couple of Zoom calls or maybe some meetings in mm. a featureless office. Um, but because um, we need the band's permission um, to do this, then I've already had a more exciting um, you know, pre-production uh, life than one could <laughs> ever have imagined. And, um, you know, I, 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 I keep having to talk to Mick. I'm delivering scripts to Mick, oh, wow. um, uh, which is terrifying. Um, um, and I'm working for FX in, in the States. I, I would say where we're at, and I, there's probably a 20% chance of it being made rather than a 10% chance of it being made. Um, but I'm, when you're talking about risk and what, whether you're prepared to take the risk, this is a project where I'm a thousand percent prepared to take the risk. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm being well paid for it, but I could be well paid doing something else that had a better chance, maybe. Mm -hmm. That this is just unmissable. It's yeah, just, no, that sounds like you know, a glorious thing. So um, um, it's 16 episodes from 1963 to 1974. And awesome. in the writing process, I'm about halfway through the first season. So it's it's a case of having having actors play the younger version of, of yeah. the band type thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. very cool. Yeah. So and we've got access to the music. Um, wow. And uh, so I'm sort of... Uh, I've got a you know team of researchers and all that sort of thing, which is pretty exciting, and um, it's it's an amazing job. But uh, it it may well all end in tears. How much how much control do you have over that in terms of like because you hear yeah. it, like you know I'll sign the music over to you, but don't mention the fact that I did drugs and you know blah blah. Is, are you allowed? To, is it kind of what to know? That's very interesting. Um, we haven't really talked about it, um, uh, but I'm working on the presumption that so much is in the public domain yeah. mm -hmm. uh, that they would be a bit daft to say that never happened. Mm -hmm. um, there are some things we all know happened. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and, you know, they, they were sentenced to prison for drugs. So... Um, you know that these are matters of public record, mm. and and they've all well not Mick, but everyone else has written autobiographies, and mm -hmm. um, and they've talked about their heroin use and their promiscuity, and um, uh, so I think the trick is to write it in such a way that um, uh, I don't cross some kind of line. Yeah, um, mm. I don't need to invent very much. Uh, it's such <laughs> an extraordinary story, anyway. Yeah. Um, and I find the central relationship between Mick and Keith actually very moving mm -hmm. because they were at primary school together. Yeah, that's amazing. Oh, and, and, you know, and the band is 60 years old soon. Um, and it's that's incredible, that I think, yeah. given what they've been through, that mm -hmm. they still perform on stage together. Um, and they're still meant to be fantastic live. For how long? For how old they are and how long? No, they, they're they're unbelievable. Um, I, when I had to pitch to the whole band, we had to fly to Miami, me and the producer, and and, and pitch to them in the 
in the bowels of a football stadium a couple of hours before a show. And the show, I, I, I said to the manager, I've seen them twice, once in 1975 and once in 2019. And the 2019 show was way better than the 1975 show, <laughs> um, like, without a doubt. I think they've got it now that it can't fall below a certain level yeah. and it probably can't go above a certain level either because um, everything's so brilliantly managed mm-hmm. and uh, that that it's sort of within that yeah. range, if you sort of mean. Yeah. But, but the bottom level is very, very high. Yeah, and Mick, Mick had just had a heart operation when I first started talking to him. And, you know, he's 78, I think. Um, oh. And these stages are enormous. And he's running from one side of the stage <laughs> to the other. And when you think about what your grandparents were like when you were a kid, yeah. they probably weren't 78 even, but yeah, they were not right. capable I don't know what it is. I guess it's it's the best medical fitness regime you can possibly buy. And maybe the years right. of drug use and promiscuity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all the things we're warned of. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's still time for us, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Still crack this. <laughs> but, yeah, it's it, it's it's been a. A lot of fun so far. Really, really, really interesting. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I look forward to it. What was the last book that you read? The last book I read was Saul Bellows, Henderson, The Rain King. Um, uh, And that was purely, as we were talking about, that... um, something that I had on my shelves that I thought I've never read any Saul Bellow and maybe now is the time to read it. Nice. And what about the last film that you watched? Um, Well, I mean, again, lockdown is a ton. Um, I think uh, literally the last one was that Romanian documentary collective. What's that about? It's a, it's um Collective was a nightclub in Romania that burnt to the ground um, and uh, about 80 kids died. It was a heavy metal concert. Uh, There were no fire exits. Right. And it resulted in the fall of the government. But there was one newspaper that went after um, the health people in Romania, not because of the fire, but because I think something like 40 people have died in hospital they came out alive and in any Western hospital they would have lived and they all died. And this journalist newspaper investigating find bigger, bigger, bigger scandal. I mean, it's just, it's kind of jaw dropping. Mm -hmm. So it turns into all the president's men, except it gets really depressing at the end. Um, But one of the things they find out is that um, every hospital in Romania was buying its disinfectant from the same company and it was diluted like <laughs> 10 times. Jeez. My God. Anyway, I, I noticed it because it, it's had a couple of good reviews recently. Um, and then before that, Walter Matthau in A New Leaf, which was an Elaine May film from the early 70s that I kept seeing mentioned in Greatest 100 Films of the oh. 70s and things, but I'd never seen. Excellent. It, 
it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what was the last TV show that you watched or are watching? Uh, I, I watch TV all the time. Um, it's been brilliant, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I am in the middle of a, a show called Rectified. Have you ever heard of it? I have oh, heard of yeah, it. Yeah, I got the box set for um, Christmas or recently anyway. It's on my shelf. I've not watched it yet, but I've heard it's been to be very good. Well, the reason... Do you have a look at Metacritic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I was on Metacritic looking at um, best t- new TV shows, and then I noticed it had best of all time, mm-hmm. best reviewed of all time. And I think Rectify was number one. Oh, wow. <laughs> the best-reviewed the best TV show of all time. I think, I've never heard of this series. And um, uh, in Britain, you can find it on Acorn TV if you subscribe extra to Amazon at £4.99 right. a month. okay. Anyway, it's one of the best TV shows I've ever seen. Oh, wow. Excellent. Yeah, it was my, my, my parents gave, gave me the box set, and they... Loved it. They watched it on the Acorn thing. I don't know where, how they found out about it, but they said it was fantastic. And it's amazing. It's in there. I need to watch it. Yeah. That. Uh, it's devastatingly sad, is all I would say. Okay. It's, okay. it's, um, it's sort of, uh, are you Friday Night Lights fans? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's my favourite show of all time. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's, it's sort of Friday Night Lights crossed with True Detective. Oh, oh wow. this sounds like my. <laughs> oh, I don't know why I waited so long to watch this. It's small town Georgia um, and family, but the family is very, very affected by something very terrible. Excellent. Right, okay. Definitely check that out. Yeah. Acorn TV, here we come. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the, uh, the very, very last thing we do is a quick fire, either or, and there's uh, no right answers apart okay. from one. And uh, the first one, first one is uh, Colin Firth or Jimmy Fallon. Oh, Colin Firth. <laughs> um, would you uh, Arsenal winning the Champions League or Arsenal winning the Premier League? Champions League. Um, never seen it. Seen the Premier League a few times. Yeah. Um, that that would be. I, I, I'm guessing that would be the thing that um, I, I may well die without having seen. <laughs> Uh, fancy restaurant or a takeaway? Uh, takeaway. Uh, TV or cinema? In normal times. In given recent qualities of both, I would go TV. Mm-hmm. Nice. And the last one: real book or ebook? Real. Um, I, 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 I still feel lost with all the 70% and it feels so yeah. airless compared to um, real book. Yeah, fair yes. enough. Excellent. And, uh, yeah, Tarek's a big uh, ebook advocate. but yeah. <laughs> Well, I use them and, you know, again, when I'm travelling, it's incredible to have as many books as you want in, in something very small. But if I'm at home, I buy books and I read them. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that was a really fun chat we had with Nick. A really nice guy and really interesting what he was saying about the cards in your hand. I thought that quite an interesting yeah, analogy. The, yeah, everyone ultimately has the same, the same, not quite a full deck of cards. Yeah. Um, but yeah, by, by sort of 
working with other people and sort of adapting stories and stuff, you're able to expand your hand, as it were. So, yeah, yeah, it's quite a good analogy, that. Also, I thought it was interesting what he was saying, that, you know, breaking in to novel writing is it's less of a punt for a publisher to to sort of take a chance on a young writer and, and you know, they'll, they'll know that they might improve over two or three books or whatever. But you can't do that with a movie because movies just cost so much money, which is, you know, it's it's maybe counterintuitive that in the sense that writing a screenplay is, is you know, as a as a length of work, is a shorter thing than a, than yeah, a novel. Yeah, that's a good point, isn't it? It's true. You can you can you can bang out a whole bunch of screenplays a lot faster than you could one book, mm-hmm. and yet the screenplay is the harder thing ultimately to get made. The riskier project with more money. Yeah, and the book is the thing that takes you a lot longer, and is ultimately perhaps easier to get out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think that's probably right. Setup. But uh, very much looking forward to that Rolling Stones series. That yeah, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, and just excellent access it got to. All I know, just the, the the process of of yeah getting access to these guys and just talking and I'll just with having them. to spend time with them. I know it'd be, it'd be amazing. Imagine the stories. Imagine the stories that he knows that he's not allowed to tell. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> they might. It'll be interesting to see what turns up in that show. Which I know he said it maybe has a twenty percent chance at this at this stage of getting made, but you've got to think that. If you pitch a series about the Rolling Stones, it's there's, a, there's an audience there, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, absolutely. You would have thought it'd be a, a strange one to say no to. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think that Paul Greengrass movie he was talking about is just out on Netflix, is it? I think uh, News of the World with Tom Hanks. It is indeed. I think it was out yesterday or the day before. Time yeah. recording. Yeah, I've not watched it yet, but um, that, that's one I will definitely have to check out. Yeah, that and uh, Rectify, which I've not checked out yet. Rectify. Uh, Unfortunately, even though it's been a few weeks since we recorded it, it's still sat wrapped up in cellophane <laughs> in, my, in my bookshelf. So, sorry, Mum, I will get around to watching that at some point, I promise. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, thanks very much to Nick for taking the time to come on to the podcast. We really enjoyed that chat. Um, and we've got another great guest next week. We do. We have a really exciting guest next week. We've chatted with Helen Whitaker who is um, a journalist and a novelist. Uh, she was involved in High Life magazine, which is the British Airways in-flight magazine, yeah. entertainment director at Glamour UK. And uh, she's also contributed to various places, the Telegraph, uh, Total Film, and her books are The School Run and her latest novel, Just Out is I Give It a Year. Yeah, it's a really fun chat. And actually, you know, I, th- I think there's... A, a, a kind of similarity in the stories, some aspects of the stories that she's telling with uh, Nick's stories as well. So um, definitely tune in for that one. And um, as ever, before we go, I would just ask that if you enjoyed the episode, please take a couple of seconds to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. Uh, that always helps us climb the rankings. And of course, if anybody wants to get in touch, they can always send us a tweet on the Twitter machine via at right underscore gear or an email which is podcast at rightgear.co.uk but otherwise uh, have a great week and we'll speak to you next episode see you later 